Uh, please grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, continuing our series in this marvelous book that addresses so many things that we need to hear. 1 Corinthians 6 is where we'll be. And I think I'll read those verses again that Tyler read for us and then open with a prayer. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12, and uh, going to be real ambitious and seek to cover three verses today. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, read with me. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will, be mast- I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Father, we thank You for Your marvelous Word, the Word of God that changes hearts and minds, that saves souls through the message of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. We thank You that Your Word is living and active and powerful. And we ask that this morning we would be laid bare before your Scripture, that we can all say with Paul, O wretched man, O wretched woman that I am. Here we are before the Holy God, and we ask that you would change us today, that you would work in our hearts and minds, work through us, cause us to have influence for your glory. Amen. God cares about how you live, okay? Despite what you may have heard, God cares about how you live. He cares about the decisions that we make in our lives, very much so. He cares about how we think about things. He cares about how we go about living our lives. And don't we know it to be true that old habits die hard? For instance, in the men's restroom here in the church building, I keep nudging the trash can one direction to make it closer to the door. So that way, when you leave and you put the paper towel on the door handle, as you should do, and you open and you crumple it up, you can put it in the trash can before you leave. But the cleaning crews keep putting the trash bin back where it's always been. (laughs) Old habits die hard, don't they? Well, in the Corinthians case, there was a philosophy that they were raised in there in the country of Greece. They were raised with Greek philosophy that had so permeated their minds and their whole culture, they couldn't escape it. And their philosophy drove their actions. They were Greeks. They were libertine in the way that they lived. They were free to do whatever they wanted. And there was all sorts of licentiousness that was happening in their culture that these believers were a part of for their whole lives. And now Paul is writing this letter to them, and we are just beginning to address sin issue after sin issue after sin issue that was taking place in the church. But let's remember as we get into these things that the Corinthians didn't have to think about these things in this way before. They just lived their lives. They lived the way that their ancestors had lived. They thought about things the way their ancestors thought about things. And now that they've come to know the Lord, they have to learn a new way of life because God cares about what we do. God cares about the decisions we make. God cares about how we live. 
And what we find in this passage today are some basic stewardship principles. In fact, in verse 12, we find what I call critical stewardship principles about how we go about making decisions in life. Look with me again at verse 12. Paul writes, all things are lawful for me. What a statement. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. This is a conversation of utmost importance because you, dear Christian, were not saved to be sinful or foolish. God did not save you for that. We exist as human beings, but particularly as Christians, under the moral law of God. We seek to pay attention to what God has said about good and evil, what is right and what is wrong. And we have a choice to sin or not. We have a choice in these matters, and God cares about how we make these decisions. But we also have a choice regarding wisdom. There are many issues in life that don't cleanly fall into a category of good or evil, right? (laughs) All kinds of decisions. The things that you wore today, what you chose to wear here today, not good, not evil, just a matter of wisdom. I'm thankful none of you dressed like you were going to the beach. (laughs) That's helpful. I'm thankful none of you wore something that was very distracting for a preacher up here. Thank you. It's a matter of wisdom. What you listen to in your car on the way home today, good or evil, it's a matter of wisdom, isn't it? Or if you listen to anything at all. These are called doubtful things in Scripture. Uh, That's the New King James rendering of a word in Romans 14. It's a word that could be said uh, of opinions. It could be defined as opinions. These matters of opinions must be governed by the moral law of God and by our wisdom. Lots of things out there that are not inherently sinful, but we have to pay attention to them because they can become sin issues, can't they? Anything can become a sin issue. In fact, good things, good gifts of God can become bad gifts. Maybe you've heard the phrase, a good thing became a God thing. A good thing that God gave you, you ended up worshiping as if it were a God. And we need to seek to avoid that. So, as Christians, we make choices freely with those moral limitations and with self-limiting wisdom as God grows us by His Spirit. And that's the idea in verse 12. Paul is saying all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Why is Paul bringing this up now, you might ask? It seems like it's a disjointed collection of verses. We were just talking about in chapter 5, a man who was sleeping with, living with his stepmother, We're talking about in chapter 6, lawsuits against one another. And Paul goes on to talk about food being for the stomach and the stomach being for food there in verse 13. What point is he making in all of this? Well, he's been in this vein. He's been heading in this direction for the last chapter and a half as he's been talking about the Corinthians' judgment and how they make decisions. He was talking about in chapter 5, Not necessarily that this man was in sin. It was pretty well understood that this man who was with his stepmother was in sin. But how they were judging the matter, how they were going about handling the case, how they were executing good judgment, or in their case, not executing good judgment. In the case of lawsuits between believers, they were saying some matters are too difficult for us and we need to bring in the world's judgment. We need to bring in outsiders' judgment to settle disputes among us. They weren't judging properly. And currently, 
the section that covers the rest of the chapter, Paul is addressing this issue of porneia. It's a word that's translated as immorality or sexual immorality in your Bible. It's where we get our word, of course, pornography. And in particular, the Corinthians had an issue with temple prostitution. It's such a strange thing to us, but it was a part of their culture. It was something that they just grew up with, something that they did instinctively almost in their culture. And it appears as though there were people in the church at Corinth who were still engaging in relations with temple prostitutes. And so Paul is writing this tactfully, inspired by the Holy Spirit, addressing the issues that they were dealing with, encouraging them to look to the moral limitations that God gives us and to employ wisdom in their decision-making. He's going to address many topics this way. If you just turn the page or two, you can see the headings over each chapter. In chapters 8 and 9, we're going to be talking about Christian liberty regarding food and other matters. And in chapter 10, it's uh, going to address the examples of the Old Testament that Tyler mentioned in Sunday school and how we are to learn from their sins. In chapter 11, it's talking about head coverings and how they judge that matter and communion, which we'll partake in later in this service. There are many issues that we judge and judge rightly, understanding that we are limited by God's moral law and we are limited by wisdom. And Paul, writing to these Corinthians, urges them to make wise decisions in light of their identity as new covenant Christians. When we make decisions, we make decisions rooted in our identity as those who have been redeemed by Christ, not by individuals who you know, just make decisions on the fly and let the chips fall where they may, and we're just not thinking through things. No, we want to think diligently about the decisions we make. We want to take our lives seriously. How else can we stand out in a world? How else can we be lights in the darkness? But to think through what God would have us to do, and to not just do the things we've always done, because some of the things that we've always done are evil. Some of the things we've always done our blatant sins, rebellion against God. And so Paul writes this phrase to them, all things are lawful for me. It's a statement that was taken from their culture. The Corinthians and the Greeks at large were known for saying, all things are lawful for me. That's how they lived their lives, without regard to any law. But Paul does apply this to himself, saying, all things are lawful for me. And there is a great sense in which Christians are free, aren't we? We are free from the law. We have righteousness that has come to us apart from the law, the message of Romans, the message of Galatians, the message of the New Testament. But this line from the culture was said in such a way as, like maybe today we would say, you can be whatever you want to be. Now we know there's a good way to say that with good intentions, and there's a very perverse way to say that, isn't there? For instance, I'm hoping in most of the homes that make up this church, when you say, maybe to a child or a grandchild, you can be whatever you want to be, I'm hoping you're saying that with the presuppositions that we get from Scripture. Within God's revelation, with, within what God has called you to be generally as a human being, you can be whatever you want to be. Not encouraging them to sin, not encouraging them to reject the will of God, but within the will of God. Yet we know in our culture that phrase is being used wildly. 
They're looking at children and saying, you can be whatever you want to be. And they don't have the same thing in their minds when they say that to a child as we Christians do. And so Paul here is taking their phrase and he's hedging it a bit. Paul's taking their phrase and he's limiting it. He's limiting the scope of what that means. All things are lawful for me, but not all those things are profitable and I will not be mastered by anything. He, of course, is assuming Scripture's moral limits. Just run your eyes up a few verses before, verses 9, 9 and 10 that I covered last week. He makes clear to them, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. These behaviors that are practiced, these behaviors that form their identity are going to keep them from God. Paul is assuming the moral law of God. Yet, as I mentioned before, within these fences we have great freedom and we have to make wise choices. Like Adam and Eve placed in the garden, were they free? Yes, they were. But did they have limits? Yes, they did. The one limit they had, they broke, of course. But I want us to dwell for a moment on the issue of Christian liberty, and I want to show you Titus 1.15. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Titus chapter 1, verse 15, which says, "...to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled." What a statement. To those who have been made pure by the righteousness of Christ, and that's what happens in the gospel. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that person is given a new nature. That person is born again, regenerated, meaning that person is righteous in God's eyes because their identity has changed. They've become a child of God, and that person is counted as pure. For all time and eternity, God sees that person as pure because the righteousness of Christ has covered all their sin, past, present, and future. And God says, you are pure, you're clean, you're innocent forever and ever. It's an amazing, amazing gift of grace. And Paul, writing to Titus, says, to those, the pure, all things are pure. Meaning, as we go about living this life and the freedom that God gives us, We do have great freedom, and our motivations being shaped by the gospel, we set out to please God. We set out to do what honors God, and there's great freedom. We can do different things to honor God as free children of God. Our minds and our consciences have been regenerated, born again. And of course, we're not totally free from sin. That doesn't mean whatever we do then is pure. We are still within those moral limits that God gives. There still exists sin in us and around us. That's why the Christian life is a struggle. (laughs) Because you've been made pure. Your motivations are new. You want to be pure. You want to please God. But it's not easy, is it? Because here we are in this body of death, wrestling with sin all around us. It's a battle. It's a battle. But to the unclean, Paul says in that verse, those who are not pure, those who have not been saved, those who are not covered with the righteousness of Christ, their minds and their hearts, their very souls have been defiled by sin, and therefore they can do nothing clean. We don't like sometimes having these really harsh lines drawn, but here it is in Scripture. If you're pure, you're counted as pure, you're covered. All things to you then are are covered by the righteousness of Christ. You're forgiven completely. But for those who have not been born again, there is nothing that they can do purely. 
That is how deep the root of sin goes. There is nothing that can be done that is clean or good in the sight of God. So we understand then coming into this Christian life and experiencing this limited liberty that it exists in a variety of areas. This liberty that's been limited by God's moral law and by wisdom exists within our physical appetites. And that's what Paul is addressing in this passage today. Our physical appetites. We think of food, right? This is an example right from Scripture. There are some people who believe they are free to eat anything they want. And there are other people who are sensitive toward what they eat. There's liberty there, but it's hedged by God's Word. It's hedged by their conscience. It's hedged by wisdom. It's limited in its scope because of that. There are all sorts of things in our lives that are limited in that way that we seek to employ wisdom and we seek to benefit others. That should be our motivation in making decisions is to not only take care of ourselves but to serve others. And these appetites that we have, going back to the idea of physical appetites, look down at your text today. He says in verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food and the body is not for sexual immorality but the body's for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. These physical appetites, these physical urges that we have are good when considered rightly, when handled rightly, when the choices are made rightly. There's a dualistic teaching that sometimes exists in Christian circles that says, well, because you have physical urges that are bad or because you want to do things in the body that are bad, that must mean that the body is bad. And we can't jump to that conclusion. We can't fall into that camp because, correct me if I'm wrong, but God created the body before the fall, right? God created the body before Genesis chapter 3. And so God created us for a purpose with our bodies to live in a certain way. We're to be mindful of that and reject any kind of teaching that says anything physical is bad or icky or gross. But God has created us in this way. We need to seek after that and take seriously the decisions we make in the body. I mentioned Paul's going to be addressing this topic of sexual immorality, this topic of porneia, and perhaps as we start getting our minds around how we should address this issue, Proverbs would be helpful. So keep your finger here, but turn back with me to the book of Proverbs. And I want us to see in Proverbs chapter 5, good use and bad use of the body as God has revealed it to us. Proverbs chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 1. Seeking to understand how we can rightly live in this body and please God with the life that He's given us to live. Proverbs 5, starting at verse 1. It says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. And smoother than oil is her speech, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable, she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others 
in your years to the cruel one. Drop down to verse 15 with me. We just read the instruction of what not to do. Now, here's the instruction of what to do to this son. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. You see, there's positive instruction of how we are to use our bodies in physical relationships. And then there are things that we are clearly not to do, because God cares about the decisions we make with our bodies. He's designed us in a certain way. We referenced in Sunday school today Numbers 25, where 23,000 were killed because they joined themselves to women they were not supposed to join themselves to. And it's referenced here in 1 Corinthians. We'll get to it in a few chapters. But Israel had specific instructions for how they were to live to honor God in their sexual relationships. God gives us good things, but He gives us those good things with moral limits, doesn't He? and with wisdom. And we are to recognize that from the start of this conversation. So Paul, what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 6 is he's really shifting the question. The Corinthians perhaps may have been prone to ask the question like many of you when you first came to the Lord and you first came to understand Christianity. Their question may have been, what am I allowed to do? I know that was one of my questions when I became a Christian. So what, so what can I do? <laughs> Just tell me. Well, Paul is actually shifting the conversation away from that question, and he's asking them essentially to ask themselves this, how am I to live a life worthy of God to serve others and to bless others? That's the question we should ask. Not focusing on ourselves, what can I do for me? But how am I to live a life worthy of the God who called me in service to others? And that's where he takes this question, giving them two considerations, saying, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. The first word there, profitable. That word has to do with advancing something in a good or godly direction. That's what profitability means in the New Testament, advancing in a good and godly direction. So Paul here saying we are free, but that doesn't mean all things are helpful, right? We are free, but not all things are holy, Not all things are profitable. And this is particularly true in the area of sexual behavior. We are free, but not all things in our lives, not all options that are available to us are profitable, holy, or helpful. And that which is foolish or sinful is unprofitable. It's to be carefully avoided in our lives. Those things that are unprofitable. Those things dishonor God. They shame Christ. They hurt us. What we do with our bodies, if we go out and live a licentious life, doing whatever we want to do physically with our bodies, we can bring serious dishonor to the church, can't we? 
And when you dishonor the church, you dishonor God, because the church belongs to God. We are not to shame Christ with our physical appetites and with our behaviors. And oftentimes, many of these sins end up hurting us as well. These sins do great harm to our own bodies. John MacArthur has written in his commentary, Involvement in illicit sex leads to the loss of health, loss of possessions, and loss of honor and respect. Every person who continues in such sins does not necessarily suffer all those losses, but those are the types of loss that persistent sexual sin produces. Not profitable, is it? Doesn't advance the cause of Christ. Doesn't advance our personal holiness. So Paul says, I won't do those things that are unprofitable. He also says, I will not be mastered by anything at the end of verse 12. All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved to anything. It's another way of saying that. Our appetites that we have, again, are good and lawful. God created us physically with physical bodies. He's given us these bodies. And there are good and holy purposes for them. So we must have our actions regulated by God and not become enslaved to anything physically. And the grace we've been given as Christians, we must seek to maintain the freedom that we have to live this life. Once you become mastered by some sort of sin... You're no longer free. You are to avoid being mastered by sin so that you may live freely in service to God and to others. When a good gift becomes our master, we're enslaved to an idol. We've made it an idol. We've bowed the knee before that gift. And it seems like sexual behavior in particular enslaves people. It's like a drug. Captures the mind, captures the heart and enslaves people, that they're mastered by this sin, unable to live and walk in the freedom that they have in Christ, unable to fully feel the clear conscience that they have purchased at the cross by Christ, unable to feel those things because they've been enslaved to something. Freedom issues can easily become sin issues, can't they, as we become enslaved to our appetites. So now I want you to think, in our culture today, in the life that you live and the people that you interact with, how would you go about addressing the phrase, it's kind of lessened in popularity in recent years, but YOLO, right? You only live once, YOLO. It was a hashtag for a while. <laughs> Not sure if any of you care, but uh, you only live once. You only live once. And what's implied in that, you only live once, parentheses, so do whatever you want to do. That's what's in that phrase. How do you, as a Christian, in your context today, go about addressing that philosophy? That was the Corinthians' philosophy. You only live once, then you die. Make the most of the time you have now by doing what you want to do. How do we go about addressing that? And for our young people who are in school, middle school, high school, going into college, you got to know this. Absolutely need to know this. Because the philosophy the world has to offer is this. Do what you want, for tomorrow you die. Let's think through this biblically. Start with me in verse 13 again, here in chapter 6. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. 
Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Here in verse 13, Paul starts giving them a greater purpose for the body, for the human body. He takes another Greek saying there at the beginning of verse 13. They would say, food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food, but God will destroy them both. A common phrase in their culture. It's like saying, you know, you you might have questions about what's best to do here and there, but God's going to destroy it all in the end. So just do what you want because it's all going to get thrown away. God's just going to crumple it up and toss it. So whatever urges you have, satisfy them and don't worry about any of the consequences. This approach that they had to things like food, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, they took it and applied it to sexual behavior. After all, we're just in the realm of physical appetites, right? It's just a physical urge like being hungry. So whatever you do to satisfy your appetite, whether that's with food or with sexual behavior, just go ahead and do that thing. For tomorrow we die and it doesn't matter. They had no regard for limitations. They expressed that there was just one life you had to gorge. So go ahead and start gorging. They took the food and stomach biological relationship that is just for this life. We see in heaven it looks like we'll be consuming fruit, but it doesn't seem like we'll have a hunger like we do today. You wouldn't die if you didn't eat it in heaven, so it's different than it is here. But they were taking this temporary biological relationship between the food and uh, the stomach, and applying it to sex and the body, and saying, just as you eat whatever you want, go ahead and behave however you want in the bedroom. They thought the spirit would be totally unaffected by that. A person's soul is totally unaffected. It's just physical, and it'll all be tossed out in the end. We see this kind of thinking in evolution, don't we? That we're all just mere animals, What happens when you take a generation of young people and convince them that they're animals? They start living like it, don't they? That's the culture that we find ourselves in. You have no purpose. You're just a bunch of atoms that constitute this bag of bones. And you can go out and you can just do whatever you want because all that there is is the physical. That's the message of our day. In fact, I saw an advertisement on social media yesterday for a new show on HBO. I can't even repeat to you the title of the show. And there's the image right there. And it was about a voyeuristic look into people's sexual behavior. Why not? If we're just animals, why not? But if you're made in the image of God, if you weren't just given a body, but it's a body-soul relationship, there's a holistic unity that exists in the image of God, then there are all kinds of not just limitations, but purposes that come with this life. It's not just about, well, God's my maker, and He says, do this and don't do that, and I have to obey, or He'll hit me with the yardstick. That's not what this is. But God created you with purpose. He made you in His image. He made you for relationship. He made you to live a life that honors Him, that glorifies Him because He's worthy of it. Because God's worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And when you take this body that was given to you, it's not your own. When you take this body that was given to you and go out and use it in perverse ways, you're rebelling against the very purposes of God. 
and you're taking something that's beautiful and you're bringing it down into the dumpster. Today, we teach that all forms of sexual expression are beautiful. That's from the gutter. They've taken something that God has given us, the rainbow, and they've perverted it. They've taken what is beautiful, they've made it ugly, and they've called what is foolish wise. And as Christians, we're called to have a mind that is elevated in these matters, a mind that is based, rooted in, consumed with the Word of God, that we can see these things for what they are. The Corinthians grew up in that kind of culture, and Paul called them to change based on the gospel, based on the relationship they had with the God who saved them. And that has to be our call in the church today. Not a call to conformity with the world, not a call to lure in the world and, and give in here, give in there. No, we don't give in. You weren't saved to give in. You were saved to express the truth in love. You don't have to have one or the other. It's both. It's both. Don't give in, Christian. Don't concede for even a moment on the basic metaphysical principles of who we are and who God is. Forgot where I was in my notes. <laughs> Any view that separates the soul and body unity that God has given us will result in sinful licentiousness. We see this in the sexual revolution that we're living in one of the many waves of it today. They've separated the soul and the body. There is no image of God. There is no purpose for your body. So do whatever you want. Sinful licentiousness. We see it also in abortion, don't we? The body, well, it's just a clump of cells. Removal of the soul. And when that body just becomes a clump of cells, it's no longer murder, is it? You're just disposing of matter. You're not actually murdering someone who was made in the image of God. We have to keep these things in perspective. Because we, as whole beings, soul, body, together, redeemed by Christ, we have a purpose in this life. We belong to the Lord. You can look down toward the end, uh, the very last verse, actually, of this chapter that I'll get to next week. You have been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. You don't own yourself, but you're owned by God. And the good news is, He's a way better master than you are. He's actually a good master, a holy and righteous master. And it's great that we belong to him and not to ourselves. So Paul says, you're taking this philosophy, the stomach's for food, food for the stomach, God will destroy them both. Right there in the middle of verse 13, he explicitly says, yet the body is not for immorality. The body is not for that. Immorality is a rejection of God's design, God's intent for our bodies and the way that we live. And he makes his own little statement. So as they had their play on words with food and stomach, he makes his own statement with the Lord and the body. He says, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body is the Lord's. God created the body. It's not a result of the fall. He created it before the fall. It belongs to the Lord. And for Christians, it's imperative that we live in light of redemption. 
Of course, there's an element of authority to all of this that we don't belong to ourselves and we appeal to the God who has all authority to tell us how we are to live. But there's also a great element of motivation here. Going back to the the idea of being profitable, living profitably. What is your motivation with the way that you live? Hopefully it's not just, well, God said don't, so I won't. If it stops right there, I mean, it's true that you said that. That's good that you recognize truth, that God says that's sin. But what's your motivation? You have to have a recognition of truth combined with the motivation of love. Truth and love. That you would live a life pleasing to God out of love for Him. To live profitably for others out of love for them. You have to have that view. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, wrote, Those who take Scripture seriously are not prudes or legalists at this point. Rather, they recognize that God has purchased us for higher things. Our bodies belong to God through the redemption of the cross, and they are destined for resurrection. Part of the reason why Christians flee sexual immorality is that their bodies are for the Lord, who is to be honored in the deeds of the body, as well as in all other behavior and attitudes. That's our motivation, isn't it? To honor God. The body is for the Lord. The second part of Paul's statement here in verse 13, and the Lord is for the body, can be a bit difficult to understand. I think first and foremost, we should recognize that Paul wasn't necessarily aiming for a precise creed here. He was making a play on words with their own statement. Yet still, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so we need to seek to recognize what is meant by this. It certainly doesn't mean that the Lord is for the body in the sense that He is beholden to us, that God exists just for us. God doesn't exist for anyone. God exists outside of time and space, and He exists for His own glory. But we can think of a couple things this may mean, one being that our Lord now has a body. When it says the Lord here, it's referring to Christ. We see that in the very next verse. Our Lord has a body, and through His body, He lives perfectly righteously. Christ lives in perfect, absolute holiness. We also see down in verse 15, look down just a couple verses. Paul asks them the question, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And that's most likely of what... Paul has in view here that the Lord is now working through our bodies because we are members of His body. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, you've heard before. We're the hands and feet. So the Lord works through our bodies. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for our bodies. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Reject sexual immorality. Deny it. And Paul takes their minds to the end the end of the age, in verse 14, he says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, that's of course in the past, and then he points them to the future saying, But He will also raise us up through His power. This is the future glorification that awaits the Christian. The future glorification awaiting the Corinthians. We live now almost 2,000 years after these Corinthians, and their bodies are still in the grave. Yet this verse is no less true for them today than it was then. There awaits a day when the Lord will raise up those Christians who are in the graves. Their bodies will be changed. This is chapter 15. We're going to get to it in the next decade. But Paul writes to them in this letter, 
that in the twinkling of an eye, they will be changed. They will, this mortality will put on immortality. They will be glorified in the sight of God. Remember, Greek culture saw the body as only temporary. It was to be tossed, thrown away at the end. Paul says, not so. Not so. You can't apply the food and stomach relationship to what you do with your body physically in your sexual behavior. Because this body that you have right now, Christian, will be raised up. This body that you have will come out of the grave. It will be changed. Let that fact drive your thinking on these things. This life is so quick, isn't it? It is just a blip on the timeline. It's such a vapor. But the decisions you make now have long-lasting effects. Some of you, all of you to a degree, are living with the effects of past sin to varying degrees. And it goes beyond your life. There are choices you make that affect others. There are choices you make that affect generations. Let the fact that you will be raised up to meet Christ in the air motivate you today. We are to encourage one another with these words. Encourage like, boy, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We're getting out of here soon. But we're supposed to encourage in the sense that let's do today what has a positive, profitable effect on tomorrow. Let's do today what advances the kingdom. Let's do today what honors Christ. Because that's where we're going, is to be with Him. This body that you have will be raised again, and that should have an impact now. Let's understand that God has created us to live forever. Did God create us to die? No. He didn't create us to die. He's created us to live forever, and that needs to shape our living in the here and now as we continually appeal to Christ through the gospel. That though we are utterly sinful, and He is absolutely sinless, He stepped into this world, He stepped into this mess that we created to live a perfect life among us and to die a death in our place for our sins, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God against sin and rising again on the third day proving that he is who he said he was king of kings and lord of lords that if we believe in him believe in him with a faith in his finished work we would be saved but we have to let go of all that stuff we want to bring to the cross we got to come alone we got to come empty-handed we have to come to Christ with nothing good in ourselves. We do. Because it's not 99.9% Christ's righteousness and 0.1% our righteousness. It's all Christ. It's all Jesus. And so we come to Him through the gospel, day by day, recognizing who we are and who He is, and we ask Him to guide us, direct us, shape our hearts and our thinking to make us more like Him. And we're going to remember particularly his death today in communion as we take of this together to remember what he did in our stead on the cross.